0: You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. All right, if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to open the book of Acts, the second chapter. Today is the day of Pentecost. When people hear the word Pentecost, all sorts of different things come to mind. It's one of those phrases, terms, labels that's absolutely a loaded term. Some people think of holy rollers. Some people think of tongues talkers. The darker, more cynical cynical folks, they think of rattlesnakes and copperheads coming out of a box behind the pulpit in a West Virginia mountain church. Come on. Deliverance. Deliverance. Pentecostal is a loaded term. And for people who are practicing Jewish faith, they think of something different. They think of Shavuot, which is the ancient Jewish feast of Pentecost, or first fruits, which comes 50 days after Passover. And in the Greek, 50 days works out to the word Pentecost. So if you think of like pentagram, all the people that watched Hell's Bells got nervous right there. When I said pentagram, you're thinking of the devil. It's just a five-sided thing, you know, five pentagram. Pentecost is 50 days, Shavuot, this Feast of First Roots, is 50 days after the Passover. Now, in Christian theology, we are convinced that what we read of in the Hebrew Scriptures is a shadow that is revealed in the New Testament. And so the Lamb of Passover, John the Baptizer says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Lamb of God is crucified over Passover. Ten days ago, he ascended into heaven. We read about that in Acts chapter 1. And here we are, look with me at Acts chapter 2, as 120 Jewish followers of Jesus are located in an upper room. And it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound, everybody say, "like." like. Very important. A sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as, everybody say As. God. Let's pray together. Father, today we come to you on this glorious celebration of the giving of your spirit, and we ask that in your infinite riches, your infinite wisdom, your infinite power, your unlimitedness, that you would suddenly step into the room this morning and surprise us. We ask for those of us whose sense of expectancy has weakened and waned. We ask that this morning your grace would overcome our lack and quicken in our very souls an expectation that you're the God of the unexpected. We pray that the hearts that need healing would find it, the weak who need power would receive it, and that the name of Jesus would be magnified. We pray this in his name and everybody said. For Jewish people, Shavuot celebrates the giving of the law. Many of you remember the story when the, the Hebrew people get to Mount Sinai This is Exodus 19. How you saw the Ten Commandments, wave at me. Charlton has the Ten Commandments, come on. Okay, they get to this mountain, and Charlton, I mean, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain, right? And he receives two stone tablets engraved with what we call the Ten Commandments and the giving of the law. And this is something that is very important because it is not just giving of rules and regulations. It is the establishing of a covenant. Now, covenant is strange language to us. But simply what we want to say here is this. God has made an agreement with the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be present to them in certain ways and expecting them to be present to him in certain ways. In other words, what's happening here is this clan that has been settled in Egypt for 430 years has now been out of Egypt for 50 days. And they've come to this mountain and God has taken the clan and he's making them a nation. In other words, he's saying, I know you have DNA, but I'm going to give you a culture. You're not going to eat bacon cheeseburgers like everybody else. Come on, somebody. You're not going to mix your fabrics like other people. Saturday is going to be a do-nothing day for y'all. See, God, listen, God's restrictions are meant to create. What God is doing when he restricts us is he's creating something. He's not eliminating something. God is not eliminating joy. He's not eliminating freedom. He's creating an identity. Because here's the thing. You cannot go into your destiny, a.k.a. the promised land, unless you have an identity. You can't. How do you believe God has a destiny for your life? Wave your hand at me if you believe that. That God does have a destiny. He didn't create you just to suck oxygen. Hello. God has a destiny for your life, but here's the thing. We can't step into destiny if we don't have clear identity. That's why you get a covenant before you get to Canaan. Because if you get to Canaan without a covenant, you will get subsumed by Canaan. And God's opportunity to express his glory in the earth will be diminished. See, God doesn't just want to get us where he's destined us to go so we could be in a better place. He wants to get us where he's destined us to go so we can transform that place. You can't transform something that you're just like. We thought for so long that being a Christian was going to church every week. Being a Christian is being like Jesus. Being like Jesus means you will go to church every week. Hello. I didn't get an amen. I was looking for one right there. Come on. Being a Christian, you will not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But here's the deal. You can go to church and be like the devil. They might be in the row with you this morning. But this is why, listen to me, friends, the church has struggled to change the culture. Because you can't change something if you're just like it. So God gives them a covenant on the mountain. He doesn't give them rock decorations to put in their big temple. He gives them a covenant. He gives them an identity. Look what he says to them in the 19th chapter of Exodus. He says, I want you to be a holy nation, my my precious treasure. Sounds like 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is what God has always been after. So this day that we just read about in Acts 2, these are 120 Jewish people. But listen, there's a difference here. Because these are not people who are gathered in the quote-unquote upper room, as the church calls it. They're not gathered in this one place because they're obeying the law of Moses. They're gathered in one place because they're obeying the voice of Jesus. In other words, at this point, they're not following the law, they're following Jesus. There's nothing in the law of Moses that says on the day of Pentecost, you need to get 120 people in a room. Jesus said to more than 500 people at one time, go to Jerusalem and wait for something, this promise of God. 380 of them said, I don't really think I feel like doing that. Maybe all five of them showed up on day one of the prayer meeting. And by the time you got five days in, there was 409. And by the time you get six days in, we're down to 382. Somebody decided on the eighth day it was a new beginning, and they had to leave the place and find a new space because they were bored to death. 120 are there in this space, obeying the voice of Jesus. And here's what happens. A sound, and we said this together, verse 2, Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty wind. I can't tell you how long I thought there was wind in the room. I can't tell you how many times I prayed publicly in a microphone. Blow through this room like you blew through the upper room. The Bible doesn't say there was wind in the room. The Bible says there was sound in the room, and the sound was like wind. Please hear me this morning. If there's wind in the room, you could have the windows open and get wind in a room. Fair enough. You can get wind in a room if you throw the windows and the doors open. But, friends, how do you get the sound of wind without wind? You don't. And this is what I'm getting at. We are a people. If we are a Pentecostal people, we are a supernatural people. We are a metaphysical people. We are people who experience things that cannot be explained, cannot be conjured up, cannot be manufactured, not the result of a program, and certainly not the result of a personality. We are people who experience a superman, supernatural manifestation of God's goodness and power. Listen, that sounds like wind even when there's no wind there. Isn't it interesting that God wasn't looking to give them a refreshing breeze? He was looking to give them faith. Because faith comes by. So He sent a sound, He didn't send a breeze. This sort of experience is not something that we should ever make an ultimate thing. But neither is it something that we should ever settle for not having. Please hear me when I say this. Our children need to hear this sound. I'm going to say that one more time because i got two people that said amen to that. Our children need to hear this sound. There are neighbors that don't want to hear your argument, but they need to hear that sound. There are people that need to walk into this room and experience something they can't, you can experience a breeze anywhere. But the sound of a wind in this room, we need to adjust our sense of expectation. Because here's the thing. Fire needs to fall on the church once again. I'm not talking about Salem exclusively. I'm saying broadly, Pentecostals, Charismatics, we have been so conformed to the comforts of upper middle class, Instagram, social media, let's just all be proper and appropriate that we're afraid of the fire, At best, we're trying to get fireplaces because we're afraid that that fire might get loose and burn up the building. We're trying to contain something that was never meant to be contained. We're trying to be appropriate when something was supposed to be supernatural. We're trying to not be offensive. experienced friends it's never ultimate but it is neither is it ever optional if and, and if your faith this morning if you walked into this room i want to ask you this question how is your fire i'm not asking about when was the last time you felt god's presence i'm not asking about when was the last time you got kind of a warm little goosebump experience on sunday morning i'm saying when was the last time you got burned up When was the last time you were undone? When was the last time, like Isaiah, you stood before the train of God's temple, train of God's robe in the temple, and said, woe is me, I'm undone? When? When have we walked into this room last time? Nervous. Not because we're singing, we're preaching, we're reading, we're talking. Nervous because... We have a wild and untamed God. When was the last time that happened? There's a reason that there's a red cloth hanging over the cross this morning. It's to visually stimulate our imagination. What if fire touched your life this morning? I love this. The text pulls us into this beautiful creative tension of saying what? It it says in verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them. Here's the thing. Fire falls on community. Fire falls. This is how God works. Fire falls on community. So it is a communal fire. But look at verse 3 above it. It says that the fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So here's the thing the images that we have of Pentecost always involve two things a group of people and a multiplicity of flames. So many of us gravitate to one or the other. We love the group because we can hide in the group. In other words, you can come into this service today and 47 people can get zapped, but not you. But you can walk out and say, what a great service it was. Come on, somebody. I didn't fall on the floor. You didn't call me out. Matthew Thomas running up and down the aisles. Didn't happen to me, but what a service. Thank God. How many folks will go to a service with Matthew Thomas but don't want to go to lunch with Matthew Thomas? Hello, can I get a wit? Right? See, that's the person who loves the communal aspect of it. And I'm here today to tell you that in the original expression of this, not one person got out of that room unscathed. My prayer for you this morning, as crazy and unrealistic as it is, is that you won't walk out of here. Each one of you will experience fire on your life. I wish I could make you nervous right now. I wish you think, oh, God, is he coming for me today? I might be coming for you today. I know a lot of y'all today. I might be coming for you today. Because it says each one of them. But then there's this this aspect where some of us, we love each one. We love me and Jesus off in the closet somewhere. In other words, we love privatized spirituality. And we mistake personal spirituality with private spirituality. It's always personal, but it's never private. In other words, God knows you. He knows your name. He knows your DNA. He knows your mama, your grandmama, your great-grandmama. And he knows the plans that he has for his people. But that's not a private thing. And some of us like the private Jesus because we think we can control and regulate our spirituality on our own terms. And the moment you get in a group, here's what you find. Have you ever gone on a school trip and the slow kids are holding the whole group up? You ever been on that trip? Come on, somebody. We used to go down to Manhattan to go to the Museum of Natural History. You know, and all the kids anxious to get to the ocean room and see the big whale and the shark and everything. You know, that's the best room in the whole museum, right? And you got a teacher like, hang on, we're waiting for those kids. Listen, imagine you're Moses and you got six hundred thousand through the desert. Whoo, that's the worst class trip ever. You're looking back over your shoulder like, really? Pick it up a little bit here. You see, here's the problem. When you are covenantally tied to community, you proceed at the pace of the slowest and the weakest. And what that does is it exposes my personal ambition and my pride. They were all filled. We have to put up with one another Celebrate one another. Live in community with one another. On Pentecost, the Spirit of God asks us, how is your fire? This communal thing, if you take your Bible and turn over to Romans chapter 8, We have this image of being led. If you start, look at verse fourteen with me, Romans eight fourteen, Paul is writing and he says, "For all, everybody shout all. all, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have res- received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we. Now I want you to just notice this: the Spirit, capital S. You see that Himself bears witness with our spirit, not spirits. You see that He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is this tension: one spirit, multiplicity of children. And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Ladies, can I talk to you for a minute? You do not want a politically correct Bible translation here. Okay? You want to receive the spirit of adoption as sons. In the same way that I want to be the bride of Christ. You see, because if I'm a bride and he's a groom, it not only means that I'm different than him, it means that my difference creates opportunity for intimacy that would otherwise not be possible. Don't make me go further. Y'all, the kids are downstairs. The fact that I'm different than the groom creates an opportunity for intimacy that otherwise would not be possible. It creates an opportunity for fruitfulness that would otherwise not be possible. So I, as a man, am happy to be the bride of Christ. And all the men said, women, you are sons of God. How dare you call me a son? Well, here's the thing. What is he communicating and calling all of us sons? He's saying all of us have an inheritance and an access and an authority that is exclusive. That not everyone gets. You've got it. He's not speaking to your sex or your gender. He's speaking to spiritual identity. What do we say at the beginning of this? If you don't have an identity, you will not step into your destiny. Your destiny is to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Come on, sons. I want all the women to say, I want it. I want it. You want that inheritance. You want that authority. You want that power. And don't be silly and don't be intimidated by it. If I can be a bride, you can be a son. We love that. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Everybody put their foot down. And we just don't. You ever not read the back half of the verse? Well, Because he says, provided that you suffer. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Look at your Bible. I'm not a liar. 8.17. Romans 8.17. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Look at this. Provided we suffer with him didn't get any amens, and I ain't won any right there. <laughs> Pentecostal theologian Frank Machia, when he was writing about Acts chapter 2, here's what he said. He said that these people were formed. Listen to this phrase. They were already formed as an Easter community under Christ. Remember what we said about identity? Here we go. They were already formed as an Easter community under Christ. Can I say this? Easter people get Pentecostal power. I'll rephrase it. Easter people are best equipped to handle Pentecostal power well. In other words, when we say Easter people, here's what we mean. People who got up out of the grave. People who walk in resurrection. But here's the thing. You can't have a resurrection if you don't have a... You joint heirs with Jesus Christ provided you suffer with him. Jesus reaches not only death. He reaches death through suffering. Remember the story in the Garden of Gethsemane? The story in the garden, Jesus goes out with his disciples to pray. They cannot help but sleep. They have the sleep anointing. And he's praying to the third watch of the night. And what is Jesus' prayer? If The Bible says that he is in the depths of anxiety and despair. He is suffering to the point where he's dro- his sweat, check this out, is like, everybody say like, like. drops of blood. Ooh, I just messed with somebody right there, didn't I? You thought he was sweating blood. Okay, we're going to keep moving. And in the midst of his psychological anguish, what does Jesus say? He says, Abba, Father. You're not getting what Paul's saying about the spirit of adoption? Adoption. We all want to come into church on Pentecost Sunday and say, Oh, God, send the fire. That was a joke for people that have been around for 20 years. We've got CDs for free if you want them. Anyway. <laughs> Everybody wants the fire, but nobody wants Gethsemane. Everybody wants the power, but nobody wants the wine press. That's what Gethsemane means. Everybody wants the joint heir inheritance, but nobody wants the suffering. See, here's the problem. When fire falls on folk that never suffered, they don't know what to do with fire. If all you have is fire, but you have not been formed, the fire is wasted. I'll talk for my own self today. How many times the fire of God touched my life, and in 36 hours, nothing had changed? Somebody let out a laugh in their spirit, because they know I'm telling the truth. We've been in those moments where it's like the day of Pentecost, and we walk out into the ruts of our brains, our souls, and our feet like a Like a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool to his folly we go. Anybody besides me tired of being in a rut? I should have warned you, we shouldn't be clapping right now. Because the ruts are the ruts we made with bad decisions over and over and over again. And we wonder why we keep going the same direction over and over and over. Come on now. The people that are sitting there for 10 days, not knowing if it's going to be the 10th, 11th, 20th, 40th, 50th day. They don't know how long they're going to be there, but they're going to stay. These are people who say, not my will, thy will be done. I don't want to be locked up, cooped up in this room, but I'm going to stay here because Jesus said to stay here. These are joint air people. These are Gethsemane people. These are formed people. To be formed as an Easter community is to share in this radical trust, this reckless abandonment to the will of God that we find Jesus surrendered to in the garden. Are we here for titillation? participation did we come here just to feel something or did we come here believing that the only way we can fully participate in the work of Jesus is if the spirit of Jesus is pulsing through our body do we believe that Jesus died on a cross so we could be morally superior and have something to do on Sunday morning Or did Jesus die on a cross that we could be conformed to that crucifix image in such a way that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and that he would have a nation that is holy, that is different, that is other, that would follow him from Jerusalem to Judea, to the uttermost parts of the earth? The Holy Spirit is a push-em-out spirit. The Holy Ghost is a shover. Not much of a nudger. He's a shover. People say he's a gentleman. I don't know if he's a gentleman or not. Sounds better if you had an English accent when you say that. But I don't know if he's a gentleman. He certainly made them wait for a long time. The Holy Spirit will put us in the most awkward, how about this one, dangerous situations. When I got up here, I said, what? The Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. That doesn't sound like a gentleman to me. You see, our spirituality, I was at a car show last night in Thornwood, down in Westchester. All these old cars... They had a 1930 Ford Model A. Yeah, it's back when Michael Mandia was getting his permit, they had that out. <laughs> Corvettes and GTOs and Mustangs and all the sort of cliche stuff. And well, well, here's the thing that's cool about that show there are certain car shows where. Um, it's, it's called a concourse show. And in that show, the cars, one car could buy several homes. Okay? So cars are well into seven figures. And they're what we call trailer queens. Now, uh, uh, ladies, please don't get upset. It's just a term, okay? Trailer queens. And basically what that means is this car is not driven anywhere. Because we want to keep it in great, pristine condition. Listen, we want to keep it safe. And so we're going to show this car, but we're not going to drive it to the show. We're going to trailer it to the show. Hello. The show at Thornwood in the parking lot of the Rose Hill uh, Shopping Market Mall, there's no trailers anywhere. These dudes are driving their cars. I saw the Model A drive out. Okay? And you get to hear the sound of all these throaty motors. Well, here's the thing. Let me ask you this question, friends. Is your experience with God a trailer queen experience? Is it something that you just look at and smile at and admire and talk about? Oh, I remember when God did such and such. Oh, man, I remember when the spirit fell. I remember when Edsel Ford was designing that Model A. Oh, my gosh, Claire, do you remember when we went to the press conference? Come on, right? Right? That's Trailer Queen spirituality, when we sit around and talk about the good things of God, and all we do is reminisce. Folk, I'm not saying we got to remember. We got to tell the story. We got to testify. We got to bring it back up over and over again, because when you forget, you will fail. But there's a difference between remembering and reminiscing. I'm not talking about Trailer Queen Pentecost. I'm talking about get in that puppy and drive it. You're going to get chips. You might get hit. There's a dude last night with a Lamborghini Countach 25th anniversary edition car, 5,800 miles. He's owned it for 29 years. And he's going to drive it home. Well, it's risk. Last week, Tracy Morgan got a Bugatti. Y'all saw this. He wished he had a trailer for that thing, right? You know what I'm talking about? Dude is driving a $2 million car in Manhattan. I don't like driving a Honda in Manhattan because somebody's going to hit you. Some, and that's why, here's the thing this is why we really don't like Pentecost. Somebody's going to hit you. This is dangerous, this is risky. And if you are not formed, it's not going to stick. Are you road ready this morning? Are you ready, listen, not to tool around Jerusalem in your 57 Chevy, but to get out on the interstates, or as Jesus said, the highways and the byways. And start compelling people. Pentecost is not about making the upper room a beautiful chamber. It's about getting folk out of the upper room to the uttermost parts of the earth. One last text and then we're going to close. Quickly, Genesis chapter 11. This is one of the most popular historic texts for the day of Pentecost. For reasons that I think will be fairly obvious to us. Genesis chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Will now be impossible for them. Look at this. Come, let us go down. I love that. Let us is underlined in my Bible. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth. Therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. The Babel text bears a stunning correlation to Acts chapter 2. In both texts, God comes down. In both stories, God causes multiple languages to be spoken from one. In both stories, God moves people to the ends of the earth. What if Babel is not a story about God's judgment or punishment as much as is it a story about God's liberation. What if Pentecost is about liberation? What does Paul say in Second Corinthians 3? "Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What if God's work in Genesis and God's work in Acts is about bringing freedom to people who have been deformed by sin? What did God free these people from? I think he freed them from three things that most of us will suffer from in the course of our life. Number one, he freed the people of Babel from delusions of grandeur. They thought, you know, heaven is not a direction, it's a dimension. They thought if they went higher in a direction, they would be able to enter the the, the presence of God. They had delusional thoughts. In ancient history, we come to understand that they believed in two heavens, a visible heaven and an invisible heaven, a firmament above and a firmament beneath. They thought if we can break through the lower heaven, we can get to the upper heaven where God lives. No, you can't. No, you can't. Now we can laugh at them. These primitive peoples, what are they thinking? Ignorant. So silly. Glad we have science now. Here's the reality. Each one of us in this room has some sort of delusional issue that we've wrestled with over the course of our lives. And here's the problem with that. Hear me now. We have delusions of how smart we are, how spiritual we are, how funny we are, how intelligent we are. We have delusions about all of these sorts of things. And here's where we can find our delusion look for our despair. Chances are, if something is causing you despair, there's a delusion behind it. Not all the time, not every situation. But here's what happens when you've absolutely convinced yourself that you're capable of something that everybody else knows you're never going to do. What comes over you when yet again you fail to achieve it? Despair. There's nothing worse than living in despair. Hopelessness. It is a bondage. It is a prison. When God comes and he confuses their languages, he's not angry at them. He's not smacking them. On some level, he even acts impressed with them, doesn't he? He even acts impressed with them. But here's the thing. By getting away from the tower project, he gets them away from something that would have always been a failure. What is it that we're constantly knocking at, hammering at, jawing about, but it's never coming to fruition? And the angst that's in our soul, the chip that's on our shoulder, is the despair that comes from our delusion. And God comes and says, I can set you free from that. I'll give you a different language. The second thing, the fear of insignificance. Notice the premise here is not just that they're going to build a tower that goes into the heavens, but they are going to make a name for themselves. The implication is that they don't have one. Remember what we said about having an identity in order to get into your destiny? Please understand this. We are creatures, we're not the creator, which means this we don't generate our own identity, we receive our identity. When you live in a received identity, you have the health to step into your destiny. When you're trying to make a name for yourself, you have just built yourself a prison. It's the fight for significance or the fear of insignificance. And thirdly is the fear of isolation, of being alone, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. They assumed that dispersion was the same as isolation. And they didn't want it. I wonder how many of us, even today, walk into a room fear of isolation, fear of loneliness, fear that nobody can stand with you in what you're in right now. In your marriage, in your finances, in your health, in your spirituality, you stand alone. On Pentecost, the Spirit comes and asks us, how is your freedom? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's so funny in thinking about the first Pentecost on the mountain we call Sinai, and then the Pentecost in the last days, where we call and speak of the upper room. When we think of the upper room and we think of Babel, all these stories start to intertwine. These texts, these tales. In Babel, notice this. In Babel, what did they say? We're gonna burn bricks. What does that remind you of? Egypt. You remember the fact that the Israelites had to make bricks for Pharaoh. Please hear me, friends. When we try to generate our own identity, when we're not walking in the identity that God gives us, we will be burning bricks. Whether it's for Pharaoh or for our own ego, we will be burning bricks. Constant building projects, constant toiling, without any reward or fulfillment. Isn't it interesting that when God gets them out of Egypt... He feeds them, and I'm sorry, he brings them water from a rock, not from a brick. And he turns them into living stones, not into burnt bricks. Somebody should have said amen right there. This day is a day. For the person who isn't walking in freedom. For the person who isn't walking in that liberation that comes from the identity God gives us. Pentecost is the day when we step into that. When we become what God wants us to be. What God has destined us to be. And he marks us with fire. He marks us with wind. He marks us with these things so that we go out of here knowing God's presence was among us. I wonder if you'd bow your heads this morning.